Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. You remember the nursery rhyme of Little Jack Horner? The gist of it is this. Jack Horner was relegated to a corner, stuck his thumb in a pie, pulled out a plum, raised it high in the air, and then proclaimed, what a good boy am I. He was obviously pleased with his accomplishment and went public with his performance, seeking the affirmation and applause of those around him. But wait a minute. Before our applause reaches a fever pitch, We need to examine the scene a little more closely. If I remember correctly, little Jack Horner was sitting in a corner. (laughs) And as far as I know, the only reason why little boys would sit in the corner is if they haven't done something good. By the way, my parents never set me in a corner. (laughs) Because when you're all jacked up on cherry Kool-Aid, even a corner can be a fascinating place. But in addition to that, the pictures that I've seen in this account depicted him with a whole pie in his lap. Now, I don't know of any mother that's going to give their son an entire pie. So I ask you, could he have stolen the pie from the kitchen? Now, however Jack got the pie, and whether you buy my exegesis at this point, We do have to question as to why he's taking credit for pulling a plum out of a pie that his mother baked. Think about that. She selected the plums, cleaned them, and then put them in the pie. So any level of decency would consider at least sharing the glory with her. And we would all also have to all agree that Jack is in clear violation of acceptable table manners by inserting his grubby little fingers into the food. I don't know if we have any pies out there today, but if we do, let's make sure that everyone keeps their digits out of them. You may be thinking, what does little Jack Horner have to do with 1 Kings chapter 9? Absolutely nothing. 
I just want to share with you the kind of things that keep me up at night. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Jack Horner reminds me a little bit of King Solomon. But instead of sitting in a corner, Solomon is sitting on a throne. And he has everything that a king could want. And he's pretty pleased with himself at this point. The sad thing is, like Jack Horner, he is going to stick his finger in the pie and ruin it for everyone. Look at verse 1 with me. Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have offered before me, and I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there always. Now, the time frame of this uh, verse is significant. Solomon had finished building the temple and the royal palace. The project had begun in the fourth year of his reign, and it took him 20 years to complete it. Solomon was therefore at the 24-year mark of his 40-year reign. He had probably been about 20 years of age when he came to the throne, so he was in his early 40s at this point. That means he was slightly more than halfway through his reign at the prime of his life and at the top of his game as a man and as a king. What could possibly go wrong? As Solomon came to the halftime of his life, he was in the rare and the enviable position of knowing that he had achieved all that he had desired to do. At the age of 44, he was the golden boy who had brought his nation into the golden age. And despite his downfall in chapter 11, he would go, he would go down in history as one of Israel's most successful kings. To put it in today's vernacular, Solomon is what we would consider a total success. He was a man who accomplished everything that he wanted in life and received all kinds of accolades. He was the kind of man who was the captain of the football team, married the homecoming queen, and then turned a small business into a major corporation. He was then elected to public office and then won a Nobel Prize for the poetry he wrote just in his spare time. We are told in verse 2 that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. Twenty years earlier, the Lord had appeared to Solomon the first time, and here the Lord appears to him again. That reminds me that there can be great spans of time between the Lord's dealings with us. Therefore, I think it is dangerous to think we need a revelation from God or miraculous experience every day or even every week. This isn't even how it happened in the Bible. For instance, Abraham went through years where he didn't hear nothing from God, and yet he is called in the Bible the friend of God. Now, reading the book of Acts, it's easy to assume that the early church witnessed miracles daily, if not hourly. But did you know that the book of Acts covers 30 years? 
Guess how many miracles took place during those 30 years? Just 29. So that averages about to a miracle a year. I think that teaches us that God is far more interested in developing us for eternity. And to that end, he teaches us to walk by faith and not by sight. So don't expect two visions and a leg extension before breakfast every day. Now why? Because God wants to develop discipline. He wants us to praise him when we may not feel his presence and to study his word, even though we might not experience any kind of what we would call fresh revelation. God wants to develop and deepen you for what he has in store for you. Let me be transparent with you today. There are many times when I arise from my daily devotions and I don't feel any different from when from when I did before I did them. But I also know that God has promised that somehow, some way, we are nurtured and affected by our obedience. And guess what? I don't remember what I ate for dinner on September the 12th or October the 9th or last Thursday for that matter. But I do know that I was strengthened by the consumption of that food. The same thing holds true spiritually. We may not feel anything, but we are being strengthened. So anyway, we are told that God speaks to Solomon a second time 20 years later. So this was not something that just occurred every other Thursday. Hence, this episode must be as crucial as God's first appearance back in chapter 3. If you are a note taker, the content of the Lord's communication can be summarized as consisting of this. Privilege in verse 3, assurance in verses 4 and 5, and warnings in verses 6 through 9. Now, additionally, verses 6 through 9 turn more ominous as we are told that if Solomon and his successors prove faithless, the people will lose their place in the land and the temple, and the temple will become exhibit A of that disaster, which we are going to look at next week. The reference to the earlier appearance of the Lord at Gibeon encourages us to see these two appearances as being connected. They stand in the record like bookends in closing the account of Solomon's early reign. The first appearance had been about God's gift of wisdom to Solomon. The presence of God's glory in the temple and the coming of fire from heaven to consume the sacrifices assured Solomon that his prayer had been heard and that he had been accepted by the Lord. But there would not always be that same kind of splendor or glory in the temple. Nor would fire always consume every sacrifice. So the Lord spoke his word to Solomon, which is really better in many ways. Why? Because the Bible says that the word of the Lord endures forever. God tells Solomon, verse 3, that he has heard his prayer and his plea. 
Now let's not miss the wonder of that this morning. Solomon understood that it was no small thing to ask the God of heaven and the highest heavens to hear the prayer and the plea of a man like him. And yet that is exactly what he dared to ask God to do. Now we learn unmistakably that King Solomon was a king whose prayer and plea was heard by the Lord his God. You know, Christian assurance is a wonderful thing. It is confidence in Jesus Christ as Savior and therefore it gives us peace beyond words. It is security in God's complete forgiveness and therefore a clean and yet humble conscience. It's a firm conviction about God's promises and therefore an ultimate optimism about life. It is being unafraid before God's final judgment and therefore being certain about heaven. It's not like standing before the great Oz horrified that he even wants to hear the likes of people like us. Unlike Oz, in the reign of King Solomon, there was reasons for the assurances that God longs to hear from us. It was at a time when the people knew that God had done just as he had promised, and they rejoiced in God's goodness and kindness that he had extended to them. If we had been there among the people of Israel in the days of King Solomon, enjoying the happiness of his kingdom and rejoicing in the goodness of God, we probably would have had a deep sense of assurance that we, by God's kindness, had finally arrived. We may have looked back over the centuries to the promises God had made to Abraham, Moses, and David, And wondered at the fact that God at last had given us all that he had promised. We now have the temple. And we would have been right. But not completely right. You see, the experience of the Christian believer is like that, but more so. We too should have a profound sense of having by God's grace arrived. We can look back at the promises of God from the dawn of time and know that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. In him God has blessed us, it says, with every spiritual blessing. But there is a tension in the Christian life that can be expressed as now and yet, not yet. The now of the Christian life is magnificent. And we must pray that the Lord would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of knowledge of him so that we can live in that light. The not yet is also wonderful beyond words. And we pray that the Lord will enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know in the words of Ephesians 1.18, the hope to which he has called us, and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance shared in the saints. So, what could possibly go wrong? For that question of mine, look at verse 4 with me. 
As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and honesty, acting in accordance with everything that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not be deprived of a man on the throne of Israel. When Solomon first ascended to Israel's throne, God appeared to him at Gibeon, and he gave him the opportunity of a lifetime. The king could ask for anything that he wanted, and God promised he would give it to him. Wisely, Solomon chose wisdom. Now it was time for the king to choose again and then to keep on choosing. Now God appeared to Solomon in another dream, offering him another choice. Now the first lesson we learn from this dramatic encounter is very simple, and it's this. Everyone in this room has a choice they have to make in life. It's either for God or it's against God. And the choice that we make will either end in blessing or in disaster. One road to take is the way of obedience that leads to blessing. God said to Solomon, And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all the things that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. These verses are presented in the form of an if-then construction. That means there are certain conditions that Solomon had to meet. If he chooses the right road, and if he decides to walk with God like his father David, then he will experience all of God's blessing. The Lord promised to establish Solomon's kingdom if he walked before him with the integrity that his father David had. Now, the Hebrew word for integrity speaks of wholeness. It is taken from the math term integer, which also speaks of numbers that are not fractions or decimals. That's one of the few things that I learned in algebra, which I always thought was like regular math on a crack pipe. But anyway, there was you'll remember that part. There was no doubt that David had flaws and David had failures. But one thing he always had was integrity or wholeness of heart. What I mean is he never left the Lord to follow false gods. He sinned, he strayed, he erred countless times to be sure. But his heart was always for the Lord. And it's the heart that matters. That is why the Lord uses David as a standard by which all the other kings of Judah would be measured. hope that encourages someone this morning. Regardless of your failings, follies, foibles, and faults, God looks at your heart. Therefore, be encouraged in the fact 
that if your heart is towards him and you're not following after other gods, he promises to take note. The Lord is tender, compassionate, and extremely gracious. Therefore, I am convinced that as Christians, we often expect more from ourselves and others than what even the Lord does. We picture the Lord as being an angry God who is out to quench the smoking flax and break the bruised reed. But the Bible says that he's just the opposite of that. The psalm says that God remembers that we're only made up of dust. That's us, honey. We are animated dirt. Now, you don't expect too much from dust, do you? So more and more, the older I get and the more mature that I become, I'm beginning to see a different perspective. All too often, we punish ourselves and others. But that's not the heart of God. Allow the Lord this morning to minister his thoughts concerning you. He truly loves you. And if we simply walk in uprightness of heart like David, we will be established also. Wait a minute. Am I giving us a license to sin? Am I telling us we can just go out of this room and live any way that we want? In the words of Romans chapter 6 and the King Jimmy, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace shall abound? What does Paul say? God forbid. Well, I like the J.B. Phillips translation even better when he says, what a ghastly thought. No, it's our gratitude of his mercy that keeps us from trampling the blood of Christ underfoot. So David set the spiritual standard for all the kings who would follow after him. Once again, not that he was perfect, of course. But it does interest, interest me that the Lord said nothing here about David's adultery, deception, or his plot to murder Uriah the Hittite. Now these had been serious transgressions for which David had paid dearly but David had confessed them, and thus the Lord had forgiven them. It's always comforting me that in the Hebrews 11 chapter Hall of Faith, that none of the failures of the men and the women are listed. If you read it, the only thing that is recorded by them, and there were some major failures in chapter 11, the only thing rewarded are their accomplishments by faith. That reminds us that despite everything, David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of spiritual integrity who ruled with righteousness. So furthermore, if Solomon would choose to follow in his father's footsteps, he too would go down the right pathway of life. The same principle also applies to us this morning. If we follow God in the way of obedience, we too are assured of having his blessing. Now, obedience itself can be a blessing as we experience just the joy of walking unfettered with God. 
Really, virtue and righteousness is its own reward. But obedience also leads to many other blessings. Like what? If we work the way God tells us to work, then we can have something to share with those who are in need. If we love the way God tells us to love, we'll be able to make strong relationships that last a lifetime. If we feed the hungry and help the sick and visit people in prison, we will enter into our Father's happiness. Those and many other blessings like them will be ours if we just take the road less traveled. There is another way to go in life, however. It's the way of disobedience that leads to destruction and an eternity in hell. There are only two roads to go by. There are only two roads to follow in life. And every person must choose which of those two roads they're going to take. And here's the thing. If you don't actively choose God's way and the straight and narrow, you by default are choosing the broad path that leads to destruction. There was a famous premise, this is the famous premise of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. He writes, Two roads diverge in a yellow wood and immediately the poet knows he will have a choice to make. Because he is only one traveler, he realized that he cannot take both roads. He's not like Yogi Bear who once said, when you come to a fork in the road, just take it. <laughs> in the poem, Frost knows he's likely to never pass this way again. So he makes his fateful choice when he says, I took the one less traveled, and that has made all the difference. This very morning... We face the same choice, the choice of either choosing the straight and narrow road, because what we did for God yesterday will not answer the demands that he may place upon us today. And no matter how we began our Christian life, no matter how faithfully we have answered the call to service, no matter how earnestly we have turned to God in prayer, no matter what we may have accomplished in ministry up to this point, the choice to continue to follow him is still before us every day for the rest of our lives. Now, are we promised to make it if we're a Christian? Absolutely. He who began a good work, he will be faithful to complete it. But we can frustrate the grace of God by living in our flesh. So really, there's no place for coasting in the Christian life. The only way to continually to grow spiritually is to keep choosing for God now, even as we have chosen Him in the past. How do you do that? We choose for God by reading His Word and going in prayer to Him for everything we need. We choose God by following His plan for our calling and our career. We choose God by being content with what we have and not continually always having to grasp for more. We also choose God by saying no to sin and yes to holiness. 
And by saying things like, I'm sorry, I forgive you, I love you, I was wrong. We choose God by putting him first in everything we do, including every area of life where we know good and well what he wants us to do, but we have great trouble in carrying that out. All I'm telling us is the choice we make for or against God is more important than anything else we will accomplish in this life. There's another lesson we learn from the choice that God put before Solomon and from the way the king responded to it, and it's this. What matters the most, no matter what else we may achieve, is always choosing the right road. Allow me to put it succinctly in the words of the Lord Jesus himself when he said, What benefit is it for a person to gain the entire world and yet lose their very own soul? Jesus said something similar about roads and pathways. The way is easy, he said, that leads to destruction, and many people go that way. But the way to life... Well, that's hard, and it's narrow, and only a few people find it. According to Jesus there, everyone must choose which path to follow, and taking that road less traveled makes all the difference between eternal life and everlasting destructions. Now, some Christians seem to think that there's a choice that you can just make at any time when we first decide to follow Christ. But in fact, this kind of a choice is an everyday commitment to walk in the Spirit and grow in our faith. Will I choose God's way or will I choose my own way? Will I choose God's kingdom or Bill Scott's little kingdom? His sovereign plan or my own personal selfish agenda? Which path will I take and how I handle my work? What I do with my free time and how I treat the people that I'm around? Which way will I go? And which road will I leave untaken? Frank Sinatra sang a song called My Way, which I truly do think could be the national anthem of hell. Listen to part of the lyrics. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels. Now listen to the following line. And not the word of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. Really, when it comes down to it in life, we're only going to do it either my way or God's way. Or maybe even better, my way or Yahweh. In short, like Frank Sinatra, Solomon had everything that a man could possibly want out of life. He had money, 
property, possessions, servants, beautiful women. It was his kingdom and he was living in it with more of everything that anyone else in the world has ever had. Yet every day he still had to make a spiritual choice. No matter how successful he was, no matter how much money he had, or how much power he had over other people, Solomon still had to choose for God or else against him. Would he thank God for all this money and then put it for use in kingdom work? Would he exercise his power to serve the poor and protect the weak? Or would he grow proud of what he accomplished and not give God all the glory? Sadly, in about two chapters, we're going to see that's exactly what happened. So as we finish up today, the more we have of what this world has to offer, I think in many ways it's easier to get off on the wrong track when we're wandering down the road of some kind of idolatry. What really counts in life is not academic success or athletic accomplishments or a bigger bank account or reaching the top of our profession or taking pride in our family. The only thing that ultimately matters is the spiritual choice we make in our hearts for God or against Him. Now this truth can be a comfort even when we fail. No matter how badly things may have gone to your life up to this point, maybe even as a result of our own sin, we still have a chance this very morning to once again choose for God for His mercy endures forever and they're new every morning. Especially when we, we remember that the Savior who made all the right choices has already lived and suffered and died in our place. We choose God by fully repenting of all the wrong things that we have done. We choose God by trusting that He knows what He is doing, even those times when it seems to us like He doesn't. We choose God by believing He will provide all of our needs, not all of our greeds, but all of our needs. We choose God those times we persevere through the darkest trial, knowing that as long as we walk with Him, He is going to stay with us on that road to the end, to the celestial city. So, will we make the right choice in life, or will we choose the broad and easy path that leads to destruction? Or will we choose this morning, if you haven't already done that, that narrow road that Jesus says for the vast majority of people is the road not taken. It does not matter what we have done or not done for God or how successful we are in life. The real question is, at this point, will we choose God today, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of our lives? And the great news is, we can start this very afternoon by making the choice to follow the crucified Nazarene. I don't know about you, but I've decided I'm going to follow Jesus. No turning back. Pray with me. 
Today, Lord, we are reminded of our need to be thankful, not just for the food and the friends and the family, but most importantly for that faith that has saved us. And if that is all that we had to be thankful for, it would be an insufficient practice to last through eternity. So, oh Lord, make us thankful people today. In the words of that old song by Andre Crouch, How can I say thanks for all the things you've done for me? Things so undeserved but you gave to prove your love to me. The voice of a million angels cannot express my gratitude. All I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to you. To God be the glory for the things he has done. Father, we thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.